Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What do we have available today as patients, caregivers and healthcare providers? Are we seeing a difference in the healthcare system? What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Martin Dawes. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Genexis Healthcare Systems. We're very excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, Eric Abel. Dr. Abel graduated from West Virginia University and completed advanced pharmacy practice residency. Since then, he has practiced clinically over the last decade as a pharmacy specialist in cardiac surgery and mechanical circulatory support. As Director of Clinical Transformation at Highmark Health, Dr. Abel leads the development of strategic clinical transformation efforts, including care model design, virtual health, clinical decision support, and business development partnerships. Eric, you started in pharmacy as a specialist in cardiac surgery and mechanical circulatory support work that's earned you a significant number of awards and acknowledgements. Now your work has moved towards solving system level problems in healthcare. That's quite a shift. Do you want to tell me how that actually happened? Sure. Excellent. That's a great question. It's quite of a winding road. I I started at the bedside and I'd say even today in a lot of the work I do, I still reflect back to the problems at the bedside and how they manifested had an opportunity while I was at Ohio State University Medical Center to lead a lot of the service line improvements that we're doing in the cardiac surgery group and lead our cardiac surgery operations council. So where we brought together all the clinicians and the operations team to solve quality from the ground up. And really let's, you know, we have ultimately what we desire to do, but like the mechanism of how we do that and really understanding the problems and then how we can get past that was an opportunity that was opened up. And as such, that kind of pivoted a little bit into helping lead that organization into an alternative payment model. So we were our enterprise's first efforts into CMS's bundle payments for care improvement was led in cardiac surgery at the Ohio State University Medical Center, our medical center's first efforts into alternative payment models. So that was one of the work streams I led. And then I had an opportunity working with our chief quality officer as the state was also, the state Medicaid system was also embarking into a lot of episode and bundle payment models and ultimately had the opportunity to shift into a newer role where 80% of my time was actually manifested in just driving that and pulling that together for the system. We quickly realized that technology was a key component in, in helping us what we wanted to do operationally and really from a financial viability that the technology was in between that and the clinical operations that we needed to do to really have a repeatable process that's scalable and driven towards patient-centered outcomes. I mean, that was, that was it. That was where it began. And I think a lot of my understandings and just really the, I, I went into clinical care to really just make things better than they were when I came. And that's always, I would say, the hallmark of what I stay true to wherever I go, that I want to make it better than what it was when I came. I did that at the bedside and continue wanting to do that. But I saw the opportunity to go far beyond the bedside. And I think of like 
I can do that partly through research and publication, but by actually truly getting involved in the systems and influencing how those come together and bringing a clinical lens to that and influencing that, that was really what led me to one, get my MBA, understand the business of healthcare, and then ultimately come into a health system that's really unique at Highmark Health, where we have a large Blue Cross Blue Shield system on one side of our enterprise. And then we also have Allegheny Health Network as a provider system, as nine hospital system in between where we can use really the bring those both together and understand ways that we could actually draw really new ways of doing things, whether that's reimbursement, whether that's ways of, you know, virtual care, virtual care delivery, or really bringing data, enriched data together to really drive new insights as ways that we could actually do things differently. Amazing. I mean, that comment about leaving healthcare improved following your work is really important and either at the individual clinical experience with a patient, which I think is as exciting, but the challenge is trying to change a healthcare system. How did you encourage the clinicians and other healthcare professionals to embrace a new system? What was the motivation for them to change it's interesting. There's so many different things out there. I mean, I'm a lifelong student and trying to understand what motivates people. And I think there's a lot of stuff that we have to make sure that, you know, thinking of, you know, alternative payment models as being the classic example. There was a quite the really fast paced design and a lot of payer systems, CMS, Medicaid, your commercial systems wanting to go into alternative payment models, assuming that if we change the incentives, the financial incentives, then the health system would change. The problem is that clinicians went into care to care for patients foundationally. Certainly everybody wants to make a living, but at the core of it is trying to help others and then help making sure that there's a sustainable business model so that they don't just help one, they can continue to help many, millions, yeah. and grow and help in that. And so I think you have to meet them where they are in that. And so the change management is really critical. The problem with some of the approach historically has been the fact that every bundle or every risk-based model is constructed slightly differently. And so they're not, and, and no patient wants to have their care rationed based upon who their payer is, nor do clinicians have the time or want to invest the time to understand the nuances of risk-based contracts and things like that for about the patient because it's really the humanism in care. So I think that ultimately where we had to really align a lot of the work is try to keep it simple for the clinicians. It's like in that and really help understand the barriers to engage in some of that work and not make it, well, if A, B, and C, then do D, but not for this one patient or this one, one exception because Ultimately, what you construct needs to be operationally viable. It needs to, you know, something that really resonates and that you could drive it across the population. Yeah. And that, that in itself gets into a little bit of a political swirl in terms of how things can be done. I think that we are approaching a time of interoperability where hopefully technology will help us cut through some of those barriers and meet the clinicians where they are, and also help the respective payer systems ultimately come together to really forge ahead to drive the patient outcomes that we need. 
I love that hearing the KISS principle being used. Although it's an easy word to or acronym to use, it's actually very difficult in many circumstances to put into place because you think you're putting in a simplification, but somewhere down the line, more processes are needed to make that happen. And it is quite difficult in a complex situation. There are no straightforward, easy solutions. So, I mean, in terms of the clinical data used today at the point of care to help make personalized treatment decisions. What sort of changes have you put in to have the physicians access that clinical data more effectively? So I guess there's a couple of different ways you can look at this. I think some of it actually comes down to even the clinical data that lives in their own EHR. There's some of that that in terms of doing a full chart biopsy to make sure that they see, they see all of the gold nuggets that are in that chart. I think there's a lot of opportunity to really strengthen some of the basic clinical decision support that lives in the system. But I would say that clinical decision support, as we've always known it, and we typically think of it as, you know, well, I just need a hook or I need a banner where I need a BPA like of sorts, like a best practice alert. The problem is, is a lot of those alerts that are at best a well-designed alert to potentiate things is maybe 10% adopted. And that's probably most well-founded on pharmacy alerts for uh, for that matter. But I would say that that probably holds true in medical-based alerts around what to do and what not to do. And I, I think that in general, clinicians don't want more alerts. They don't want more of, please don't do this. They want to be notified when it is absolutely like this, you know, please stop me from doing something completely wrong. But there are other more sophisticated ways that I think that we could do to make personalized treatment decisions. And that's by, maybe the best example is if you have five treatment choices for a patient, and I'll just say in the case of we're trying to prevent a clot during hospitalization. So DTE or DVT prophylaxis is an example. But of those five choices, there are nuances that consider a patient's kidney function, their weight, other bleeding tendencies, things like that, and maybe even some of their bleeding parameters, their laboratory parameters. If rather than having a physician make decisions based upon that, on all of those each time, if I can account for data that accounts for a patient's weight, you know, what it is, already a structured data in the EHR, what a patient's kidney function is or isn't, yep. as well as other parameters that might be in there, I can use data that already lives in the medical record to maybe take that list of five and shrink it down to really this patient only qualifies for one of those. So we let's please proceed or give me a reason why you're not going to do it. And which may be other risk that isn't, doesn't live in the data uh, yeah. for one reason or the other. And that's based upon really a, a clinician's assessment. But I think that's to keep it simple rather than throwing yet another alert in their face, which is just yet another click. And then they've already had to hit 10 clicks just to get their day started. That resonates so well with what we've experienced doing pharmacogenetics. You know, we came at it thinking about putting in alerts. And then the clinicians, the focus groups told us, definitely no alerts. Tell us what we can prescribe. Oh, and by the way, include everything else. Include the liver function, include the renal, include the drug-drug interaction. They didn't want to look up a drug-drug interaction system after taking into account the pharmacogenetics and doing that. 
So very interesting. And one of the analogies, if you're getting too close to the car in front of you, do you want a light to come on to tell you that? Or do you want a car to brake for you? And the whole thing is about moving from notification to actual action. So taking away drug options on the list or concealing them or putting them somewhere else. 100%. I would say that the big part that I would say is really, really engaging clinicians in the technology design, how they can help them make their day much better. I think is a lot of that is coming down to data literacy and understanding really the foundations of if you want to do this, this is some of that actually dictates how the data is entered. Some data in order to make it more feasible and quicker in actually coming to a solution, it needs to be more structured rather than unstructured data, like free text is hard for many systems to get their hands around. But that means that a clinician has to change their behaviors. So I think it's coming down into understanding some of the data literacy and what that means and how that translates to them and how we can meet in the middle. Do you think there's an issue about trust? I mean, I trust my anti-breaking system because it comes from a reputable car manufacturer, I hope. But how do we get the trust into these decision support system so that the physician who may be expecting to see five drugs only sees two because weight and kidney function are being taken into account. Have you had discussions or heard about how that might happen? Yes, I think that's an excellent point because I think that as the you know advanced analytics grow, we move into you know more advanced machine learning, yeah. deep learning, artificial intelligence capabilities, leveraging these data, but also making sure that they're not biased. Uh, yeah, I think is really making sure that there's no implicit bias that actually has come up in the development of those. I think starting with that is really at the foundation of the testing and the iterative part is really understanding, bringing that data to the surface and let's understand that. And so many of your alerts, many of your clinical decision support really start with digitizing the work that they already do. And let's understand like if you don't change your behavior today, and we just continue, your day starts and you go from A to B to C, and most of the rest of the practice goes from A to B and C, then let's actually see that data and let's understand how those parse out as we interject really some population segmentation, essentially for the therapy that you'd like to use. But I think really getting them to understand the data and understand that that data reflects them and their decisions, behavior, I think is really the step towards trust. Because usually when you bring data towards any team, the first reaction is defensive posturing. That is, you know, they want to you know, pick it apart. But in many cases, the data are what the data are. They represent exactly what was punched in. It just may not reflect what they wanted to happen ideally. So in those cases, it's trying to like, how do we either inform the technology or how do we change clinical operations? One of the two. So if I'm getting this correct, you've produced a system change in the format of remuneration and plan, but you're also focusing very heavily on quality and the data to inform that quality process and including decision support within that. You have to do that. I would say one of the exercises I've done with some of our colleagues, uh, one of our health systems is working on our clinical decision support. I mean, I think you highlighted that this is one of the things I'm doing here. And we wanted to put some alerts in that helped align towards choosing wisely. 
So the mm. things that have been around, you know, a campaign that is not new, but it still resonates. Let's target healthcare waste, which is great. But one of the similar pieces is to put in new alerts when you already have other alerts in the system. We need to make sure there's no overlap. We need to make sure, are there opportunities to actually take alerts out? And let's look at the data to see what those look like. And we're able just on the basis of 25 or 26 alerts that we're firing in the system, those alert records, we took out about 8 million firings a year. Wow. So if you understand what that means to clinician time and helping make their days better and remove clicks that they, they now don't have to see, and then also putting things there, not to say that those alerts were maybe ill-intended or poorly designed, anything else. It's actually operations may have changed. Maybe the problem is not the same anymore. And maybe we have new capabilities that we could go back to the table. And it's really just looking for low-hanging fruit for optimization and seeing what else we can do to, to make it better. I applaud you for using the Choosing Wisely integrated into the clinical decision support. It, it actually is something that we also have over the last 12 to 18 months actually included into ours. So it's really nice to hear someone else doing that. It's not an easy process because although Choosing Wisely has got a massive pedigree, it's still not accepted by every clinician. And there are always individual cases where the Choosing Wisely statement may not fit with the clinical situation and it's working through those. Right, it's really using that as a foundation to understand potential gaps. I would say that There's one I would say that resonates with me. Well, we've looked at this on both sides of the system, whether you're looking at the payer opportunities based on claims data versus looking at how that resonates in a provider system. And I would say that using pick lines in patients with chronic kidney disease. Uh, Certainly we understand that that was a target outlined, but there are times that I would say looking at my background in critical care, placing a pick line and being able to deliver life-saving therapy by presser, using vasopressors or antibiotics, those are urgencies that are needed right now. Like if a patient can't get those, they're not leaving the ICU, the long-term consequences of a PICC line are irrelevant at that point. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's really using those as a direction rather than a weapon. Yes. You're straying into the area that we obviously focus on, personalized medicine, where you're actually saying, okay, you know, we've got to look at the pharmacogenetics, everything, not just the renal, the liver, absolutely everything to inform that. Where do you think personalized medicine, including pharmacogenetics, but not forgetting liver and renal and everything else is heading? Where do you see that as a future? I think we're right at the tip of the iceberg, just the growth in, you know, one, people using it, you know, recognizing that this is I mean, we have, what, 275, 280 drugs that, generally speaking, have some degree of FDA recognition that there's some degree of variation amongst people and how they process the drugs that we need to take that into consideration. I think where there are some additional options, I would say on a scale of one to 10, we're probably at about a three. We have the capabilities to get the data. We have potential to get the data into the HR and really have the structure. I mean, that's growing and getting better. I think policies and what you can do and how you can share genetic data are partly, you know, the public policy is lagging behind the capability clinically of what we can do. But I think the other parts that where it's missing and where I think I've talked to others about is 
really moving towards truly informed prescribing. And I think starts at a foundation of one, when the physicians or the, you know, the advanced practice providers are writing medications, do they truly have a good sense of what that patient's truest north medication list is? And that's informed partly based upon patient history. That's informed by really a lot of the claims or essentially dispensing history that can come into the HR by different vendors. So that can come in by different technology partners, making sure that that's come in and that ultimately the the clinicians have reconciled that and said Mm -hmm. what a patient is or isn't taking. And is that in, even though it's been written, are they taking it appropriately or not? So that's accounting and presenting opportunity for deprescribing in one and like stopping meds that the patients aren't taking for any number of reasons. And then on top of that, accounting for changes that have happened in that patient. So which include the liver or kidney function, including bleeding history, social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. and then also including pharmacogenomics. I think that if you roll those in and then include that with the newer opportunities that I think we have greater adoption market with, like the real-time prescription benefit check. So where I can look at, there's a new drug that has been prescribed. One, based upon the patient's coverage and benefits, is this drug covered under formulary and is there an alternative formulary preference? Mm -hmm. Where I think there is a future is how do we also account for those data enrichment opportunities of pharmacogenomics, social determinants to health, things like that to say, even if there are alternative formulary preferences, how does a formulary with a payer system account for those personalized medicine needs? and become flexible? And then are there other contract dependencies or things that they can do in the relationships to really forge ahead partnerships with pharma or other development groups to move into new risk-based or value-based contracts that really merges the ecosystem to say, yes, in the clinical trials, there was proof that this happened. But for this patient, we prescribe based upon that data can we achieve that outcome? And what does that value-based outcome look like for the patient, the provider, the PBM, and pharma together? Yeah. And I think that's really where I'm excited of the potential because the data is coming together. I anticipate there's going to be a lot of things to happen in the next three to five years. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it is an exciting period. And obviously, I would say that because we're part of it. But you're right as well. that It is about how we manage the information. But it's parallel to the healthcare that you started with. It is all about maximizing the use of the information we have for the benefit of the patients. And whether we're talking about the plan that they have and therefore the drugs that they have available, or whether you're talking about in-hospital operative processes, it's about managing data and making that data and information available and used wisely. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing is I think of the genetic data being one, I mean, certainly one major piece yeah. of the influences a lot of, you know, how our drugs are metabolized and outcomes with it. It doesn't really tell us what happens in pathologic disease states. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. A lot of the data we have today tells us about how a drug would be processed in normal, you know, hemostatic uh, or homeostatic function of the patient. Like how are they doing on a day-to-day basis? But I think that's where another additional opportunity that would really help pharmacists and and clinicians come to the forefront to say, when we have these and we have, you know, your MTM services, your medication therapy management services, 
right now, a lot of what we think about in pharmacy is managed under a pharmacy reimbursement model against the pharmacy benefits. But I think there's a huge opportunity, and I'm excited with where some of the industry in, in the U.S. is going with you know, pharmacists as provider status. But I think there's an additional layer of getting some credentialing, working with the yep. payers, and really that a lot of the, the cognitive work that goes into that is building up a new way to support business models that can drive patient outcomes where pharmacists can be reimbursed for those cognitive services. And I think that yeah. we're right on the tip of the iceberg right now that we have a lot of work to do, but I think it's all exciting work. It is. I mean, it, if one looks back 50 years and you think, you know, there were the 20 or 30 drugs that were available and the operative processes and care processes that were available, and now you look at today's world and you look at what is going on with COVID and the speed with which information is flowing, I think that it is about managing information. And as clinicians and healthcare professionals, we have to adopt that new information reality. There's one, I, I, I want to uh, be curious of your thoughts here. And there's a, a quote that I sometimes come back to and it resonates with me a little bit is, you know, change is hard because people overestimate the value of what they have and underestimate the value of what they may gain by giving that up. You brought up drugs and things back in the 50s and 60s. I think of Warfarin. Yeah. Uh, so Warfarin came out in, what, 1958, Wisconsin Agricultural Research Foundation. We still, in many hospital systems today, we give Warfarin at 6 p.m. every day, 5 or 6 p.m. every day. And why I asked a drug information specialist that I worked with who retired a few years ago, and I'd asked her, I said, like, what's the history behind that? Is there any precedent that was set that that's a magical time of day? What's behind that? And it really went back and she pulled out some old, old papers and really came down the processes of, you know, measuring the PT and INR, PT at that time only. The time it took to collect this blood sample, get it to the lab, to manage the, you know, the turnaround time, then have it available, and then allowing time for the physician to make a decision on it. That when it started at that point in time, that's really what the rounds and daily operations really were. That's why it landed at a 6 p.m., allows some flexibility. I would question, you know, there are still patients today that need warfarin. They yeah. have mechanical valves. Uh, exactly. That where we don't, yeah. Do we still need to give warfarin at 6 p.m.? As we measure the INR between 2 to 5 a.m. in the hospitals, that's not happening when we measure them in the yeah. clinic. And so do we have an opportunity? Because you thinking about the therapeutics and what happens to the clotting factors. Yeah. There's no other science behind the decision to deliver a dose at 6 p.m. And so yeah. that's one of the rich genomic areas of, of drugs. It's well studied. When I came out of residency 12 years ago, so yeah. it just still speaks to the fact that just because we have the data, just because things have changed, sometimes we still hold things really close because of the fear of change. Yeah. No, you are absolutely right. And that is where analysis will really help us. But it is stepping back and saying, why do we give stuff at 5 p.m.? I mean, it's like the antihypertensive medications. We give them in the morning. The data keeps on coming out, trickling out, that actually maybe evening is a better time to give it. It's still a little bit in the air, but yeah, it's interesting what will change. 
I'm aware we're getting to our 30 minutes, so I just wanted to thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation and uh, look forward to talking with you again as your career moves. And uh, it's great chatting with you. Thank you very much. Great chatting with you too. And definitely stay in touch and look forward to it. Yeah.